Welcome to the middle of culture. My name is Braden Jones, and I am here with my regular co-host Peter. How's everybody doing today? That's sort of a rhetorical question. Braden and I already talked about what a stupid question that is, so I'll just throw that out, and then we'll ignore that I asked that. Well, you know, it's one of those things that it's just part of the social contract. You know that when you see someone or you chat with someone for the first time in a while, you say, oh, how are you doing? And the other person responds in a manner which does not elicit further um, discussion unless, like, there's something really out of whack. Like, everyone just says, oh, I'm good, or oh, things are okay. Or my personal favorite is, I'm alive. <laughs> and then people go, ha, 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 that's funny, but you know, it is what it is. Well, we all just go through the motions of the social contract. At least saying you're alive is accurate. They can't fault you for that. It's extremely accurate. And then they're like, well, that's, that's good. And I'm like, hey, it's half the battle. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so welcome to our third episode. Uh, this week, we are going to be talking about something that kind of evolved out of our discussion um, from last episode, where we talked about the 2021 film Dune, because um, we talked a little bit about other adaptations of Dune um, and discussed a little bit uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's um, attempts his abortive attempts to make a Dune series in the seven or a Dune movie in the seventies, um, which led us kind of to talking about comics and what Yodorowsky had done. And it just so happened to have a very good sale on um, some of Yodorowsky's comics. And so we decided to talk about the ink hall today. Um, so Peter, uh, do you have any background with the ink hall or Yodorowsky's comic work at all? So I have no background whatsoever in this. As we talked about in our previous episode, I was familiar enough with his attempts to make that movie Dune that I had read or kind of heard somewhere that a fair number of the ideas and some of the storyboards that he had created for that, he then adapted into the Incal. Uh, but other than that, I didn't really know much of anything. I think I'd glanced at the Wikipedia page at some point as I was kind of going down that rabbit hole. But that would really be the extent of my previous exposure to this. And it was, like you said, Humble Bundle had a sale with a bunch of uh, humanoids comics, including all of the Incal. And so I figured, well, this would be a great time to grab a bunch of these digital comics since it's something I'd heard of. But that was it, as far as I knew, before you suggested that we go ahead and read it. Well, I guess my follow-up question would be, I know that you have read some comics, not a ton. Um, from what I've gathered, I, I would guess most of those comics are like, you know, from the big two American publishers like DC and Marvel type stuff. Yeah, and I'd even go so far as to say it's really mostly just Marvel. And that's in part a matter of convenience and in part kind of came out of a preference I was fascinated by comic books when I was a little kid. And at one point I had a subscription for one year to both the Incredible Hulk and the Amazing Spider-Man. And so I got those two books for one year for the subscription that mom and dad had gotten me. And then after that, you know, I would randomly pick up comic books here and there. There was a toy store by our house. I don't know if you remember this, that would have little plastic bags with like four random comics in it for like a couple bucks. And so I would go over there and I'd grab some of those every once in a while. But even though I was kind of always interested and fascinated by them and, and I loved Superman when I was a kid. And then when I got a little older, Superman was kind of replaced by Spider-Man in terms of my favorite kind of superhero 
character. But then I just didn't read comic books for many, many years. And it's only been in the last couple of years that I said, you know, I have a little bit of disposable income. I'd like to get a Marvel Unlimited subscription so that I can kind of dive into that. And even with that, I've barely taken advantage of it. I read Civil War, um, which that would be something to talk about someday because I don't know why it's brought up as much as it is because I thought it was kind of terrible, but whatever. It is not just kind of terrible. It is absolutely terrible and a betrayal of the uh, fundamental nature of who the vast majority of those characters are. Well, good. Then I feel justified in not really enjoying it because obviously I don't know those characters well enough, but I remember reading it just going, Oh no, it sucks. It's, it's, it's absolutely abhorrent. Yeah. And I I kept asking myself, when is this going to get good? And anyway, I've read that. And then your recommendation, I read what annihilation, uh, that whole arc and actually really enjoyed that. And then have read that Matt fraction run of Hawkeye. But that's about it. Well, I guess I read the uh, Neil Gaiman, whatever, six-issue Eternals thing, just to familiarize myself. But honestly, that's pretty much all the comic books I have read in my life. Okay. Um, Okay. I guess the other exception would be Watchmen. I I read uh, that, uh, that whole collection. I think I actually borrowed it from you at one point. But that's really about it. Okay. That's a, it's a very different background, obviously, than myself. Um, but I think it'll be an interesting uh, stepping off point for this comic in particular because, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about this, I think, this comic is like a Franco-Belgian bande dessinée par excellence. Like, this is 100% a French-style comic, which is, in many regards, very different than what you would be used to if you read American-style comics. yes. I can attest to that. Even down to like the structure of the pacing and all those sorts of things all uh, kind of get involved in how these uh, comics are created. And I think we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, but I want to kind of introduce the work and then I think we'll talk through some of our stuff. And then if we want to spoil some stuff at the end, um, we can do that kind of like we did with the Dune uh, chat. That sounds great. Uh, But so the ink call, the ink call is the story of, John DeFool, who is a class R private detective, um, and various and sundry misadventures he and his um, cement seagull uh, get into um, because he is, accidentally foisted upon him is a device, um, crystal, uh, MacGuffin, I guess is the best way to describe what the Incall is. Uh, and it's it almost felt to me like a combination between a MacGuffin and a deus ex machina. Cause there were times where it kind of felt like it could do anything. And then other times where it did nothing to just sort of whatever the story needed at the moment. That is a very apt description, I think, uh, for what the Incall is. Um, but it is this white crystal that he receives, I guess it's like a small pyramid. Um, and he, eventually starts getting hounded by um, specifically the Meta Baron, who is the universe's greatest um, assassin and bounty hunter um, amongst various and sundry other people who are all attacking him. Um, eventually he swallows the Inkal, um, which is exactly what his um, cement bird had done previously. 
Um, I'm trying to remember the name of his bird. Depot. Depot. Yeah. Uh, so Depot had eaten the Incall, uh, but then spit it back out. And then John DeFool eats the Incall and it grants both of them uh, supernatural powers over the course of the thing from then on out. Depot can suddenly talk um, and be understood. Uh, and as you said, John DeFool occasionally has superhuman abilities granted to him by the Incall. Eventually, they find the, uh, what would I say, the anti-MacGuffin uh, called the Black Incall, and theirs is the brilliant, their white Incall. Um, and then John gives it to a naked lady who shows up. We'll talk about nudity in this comic later, I think. Um, and eventually, the two parts of the Incall, the Black Incall and the White Incall, join together to create this it's a whole in call which becomes a spaceship and they fly to the edge of the universe and various and sundry really weird things happen once the two in call are combined into one dealing with the emperoress who is the leader of this galaxy's society and uh loyal soldiers to him slash her who are fighting against the techno techno priests and the moneyed interests on the part of the colonists and it gets into a lot of talk of colonialism and things like that and then it just goes considerably off the rails from there <laughs> um and i think that's i think that's as much of a uh, uh summary that i want to give right here before getting into like super spoiler territory but uh so given that background and i think that you would agree with me that stuff really goes off the rails in this book uh, yeah uh, what did you think what did you think about the ink call and your experience reading the ink call so i really did not care for it i think that's fair talk me through that uh there's a lot of things that i think we can kind of touch on as we go through it a little bit more but i would say probably the number one thing for me that that made this not work. And this is a very personal thing. When it comes to my fiction that I enjoy, it is extremely character focused. So my favorite video game series of all time is Mass Effect, with Mass Effect 2 being my absolute favorite, strictly because of the interplay between the characters and their backstories and the relationships that develop through the course of the game. One of the reasons I have only been able to read the first uh, George R. R. Martin book, A Song of Ice and Fire, is because I found the characters, at least in that first book, very off-putting. And there was nobody who I felt like I could cheer for, nobody who I felt was demonstrating any aspects of heroism. And this was the same for me. I mean, John DeFool is an absolutely irredeemable douchebag. Oh, 100%. A terrible protagonist. Yeah, he really is. And I never liked him. I never found myself sympathizing with him. And I never found myself really rooting for him. I just honestly didn't care what happened to him. And so I think that was the biggest barrier for me, is there was just not a single character that I actually liked with maybe the exception of Depot because Depot is actually occasionally pretty funny. Depot was great. I am. I'm with you there. Depot's my favorite character in the book. Yeah. Oh, hands down. I mean, he was the only one who at the end, I was like, okay, I liked Depot. Would I read a whole book of just Depot? No, but at least I liked Depot. No, 
But yeah, that was the biggest thing for me. And, and again, there's a lot of other things that didn't work for me um, that we can kind of talk about as as we, we dive a little deeper into it. But that really, I think, was was what I found the most off-putting. And that's very much because of my preferences when I'm looking at at entertainment, at whether it's a, really anything. Again, video games, book, comic book, movies, TV shows. I really have to care for the at least some character. There has to be some character for me who I feel invested in, who I'm interested in what happens. And I just, there wasn't a character like that for me in this. And that's fine. And, and I think that's actually one of the reasons I'm really glad we read this because it was good for me to go, okay, what about this didn't work? So. Sure. Uh, I, I think that's a really good point and points to a very big, uh, like I said, kind of difference in between American style comics and Franco-Belgian style comics. So a little bit of like comics primer for you and for other listeners who might not know. Yes, please. There are there are basically three big schools of thought when it comes to comics production and and comic construction. Um, and they are your American style, like uh, single issue style comics. Uh, so, you know, what you read in your Marvel or your DC or even like your image books or things like that, they're published in a serialized format in 18 to 24 page chapters generally um, and, and printed in small magazine format. So, you know, you go to your when we were kids, those comics were like 25 cents. Nowadays, they're like four to five dollars a piece, which is ridiculous and why I read far less single issue comics than I used to because they're just too darn expensive. Um, even though I really like, <laughs> and, and why most of my reading is something like Marvel unlimited where I can just pay one price and then read whatever I want, whenever I want and not feel guilty about it. Exactly. That, that sort of stuff is great. Uh, the problem for me is that I really love, this is a thing I mentioned in our texting between episodes. I'm really a fan of paratext. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of paratext. I'm not. And, and I'm looking forward to you helping me understand this. So paratext is all the stuff that is around the text itself. So, for example, I have my trade paperback copy of Dune sitting here on my desk. Mm -hmm. So, the text of Dune is the book that Her Herbert wrote in the 60s. And that's the same, your copy, which you, I think you said you have a hardback of it. Mm -hmm. My copy, which is this cheap trade paperback. The text is the text is the text. It might be laid out differently, but, like, the words are the same. But the paratext is all the other stuff in the construction of that volume, that version of the text. So obviously, you know, the uh, quotes from different publications or writers might be different in yours to mine. The covers are very different because okay. I have the one that is the now emation, major motion picture one that has, you know, uh, what's his face's Chalamet's big old, mug right on the cover which obviously yours is not like that, <laughs> that uh mine is like you know mine has you know the warner brothers pictures and legendary pictures present a legendary pictures production yours doesn't have any of that stuff so that's paratext is all of that stuff that surrounds the text of uh, or the primary text of a work so when it comes to single issue comics 
that paratext is very different than what you get in a reprint versus what you get in a digital copy. Uh-huh. You know, you read you read the Hawkeye uh, run by uh, Fraction and largely David Aha, but other artists as well. Uh-huh. But the primary uh, uh, artist was David Aha, um, and so it was probably collected into volumes, or was it collected in single issues? So the way I read, I actually purchased it for Christmas for one of my boys because I liked it so much and I wanted them to be able to read it. But when I read it, I was reading it in, again, Marvel Unlimited, which presented it in there as separate issues. It kind of had them broken up and said, hey, here's where you're going to start in Hawkeye. Here's each chapter. Here's issue one, issue two, issue three, issue four. Yeah. So I just read through each single issue, but but did so digitally. Mm Mm-hmm. But that is a different experience than when you have the trade, which is what it sounds like you may be bought to have in your house is like, here is, you know, six to 12 to however many issues collected into a book bound and covered. But the other difference is when you're reading those single issues, it didn't have the advertisements. Nope. It didn't have the letters pages, did it? It did. So that is one thing that Marvel Unlimited does that I actually really like is it leaves in all of the letters, both before and after. And so you'll get into the end of an issue and there'll be a whole thing where it's like, I mean, I remember reading one where it's like, hey, guys, things have been crazy. We're sorry we didn't get an issue out on time and it took us a little longer for this one and and that sort of thing. So it does actually keep all of that. It it gets rid of the advertisements. I'm very happy to hear that. Pretty much everything else, even in, you know, I think back to Annihilation, there would be these weird one page things that was about some character and kind of like a, almost like a baseball card type thing for that character who was going to be in the issue or something. So it does collect all of that stuff. Sure. I'm very glad to hear that. I Not having ever used Marvel Unlimited, I was afraid that I know that the DC Comics version, DC Universe or whatever, takes out all of that paratext because I was talking with a friend about it and talking about how, you know, I really like as a comic scholar to look at those things and put and help me put that book into context yeah. um, because of those conversations that often take place in the letters page. Um and so, you know, that's that's paratext. Okay. Those things are paratext because that's not going to be in, again, the version that your your kids have. The hard copy version doesn't have those because nope, it it's not. not a part of it. Correct. It's that it's ancillary to the primary text. Um, and so that is a big thing in American comics is that there are these basically these two different versions that you're presented of it. You've got the single issues where you often have letters, pages, advertisements, um, all of those sorts of things that kind of take what is an 18 to 20 page issue and make it 32 pages because that's how long it is when they sell it for four dollars. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the paperback version or the hardback version that takes all that stuff out and just collects the story in Japanese comics, which is your second big tradition after the American comics things are usually published in compilation magazines. Uh-huh. So you've got Shonen Jump, Shoujo Beat, uh, Shonen Ace. These are all like teen comics and they have them for kids and they have them for older people. But those are the three big ones I can name off the top of my head. Um, but those are enormous comics that are published on the cheapest paper that has ever been created. And they cost the equivalent of like $253 American. And they have, and they're, <laughs> you're right about the paper. I've seen some of these and I'm like, man, this puts like cheap toilet paper to like look, makes cheap toilet paper look really good. 
and that's like and and that's true of Tonka Bonds as well, which are like the collected versions, but especially like the weekly magazines Shonen Jump, the weekly magazine is like 300 pages long, has like a dozen and a half stories going on every single week that you read serialized and it costs you like 3 bucks American. Wow. It's like 3000 yen. They're cheap as hell. And Oftentimes, if you don't want to pay for them, you go to a manga cafe, you buy a coffee, and then you can sit there for literally as long as you want and just read all of the manga magazines that they all collect for you. So, obviously, that also is published in very short chapters. Chapters are usually 20 to 30 pages and are published often weekly with breaks in between chapters. like chunks of chapters so you know if you if you're reading chainsaw man that's been a really popular manga in the last few years it you'll have six to twelve weeks of chainsaw man in every single issue of shonen jump and then you'll have a few months where you won't get any chainsaw man and then it'll be chainsaw man is back and every week you'll get a new chapter and so that's how manga is often published is in spurts but in a weekly basis of like okay i got one of these suckers every week till this chapter if this like series of chapters wraps up okay and obviously published in black and white because they're so cheap because right. it, it is a, a a far more uh economical and to a certain point disposable medium it's published in black and white french comics are expensive as a general rule because they are bigger like the format is larger than either american or japanese comics uh-huh. they are almost always in color especially from about 1968 1970 on they're almost always in color um and they're published in what are called album albums um which are uh, you know when you read the in call there were six chapters in it right yep each of that was a separate album that was published once every year or two and so that's how long it took if you had read the black in call the first one like Noir, if you read that first one you weren't getting to the end of this till over a decade later. Wow. Yeah, I did notice that when that I was the, looking at the, the publishing history. I was like, dang, this took a long time yeah. to get it all out. I mean, and even some of the whatever final Incal and, and before the Incal, one of those was published in like 2000 and something. Yep. I, the last the last part of um, final Incal came out in 2010. That's crazy. So, like, this is a series that has, you know, existed for a very long time with albums coming out every year or two. And that's just kind of how French publishing works when it comes to comics. So it's a much slower burn um, and you kind of have to go into it prepared for that as a French comics reader, um, which I think is really interesting. And it influences uh, the way that you see a book develop over the course of it. And I think that we'll talk about that when we talk about the structure of this book, looking at the first pages of it and the last pages of it, how much Mobius's style changes and specifically how much he starts breaking the rules of Bande dessinée, French comics. Uh-huh. Um, because he really, like I said, the first part of it is extremely in the style of French comics. Uh, French comics style is a style called ligne claire, uh, clear line, because there's not shadows there's lots of line work but if you flip through the book any shadows are done only through tone and color not through drawn shadows interesting now that you mention it uh, i can kind of thinking back yeah I, i get what you're saying like that is the french style it is uh you know your greatest example of french style is 
Tintin. Tintin. Uh-huh. That is the French style comic. And you know, you've seen Tintin. It has kind of a cartoonier style. It's for younger kids than this, but there's not shadows. It's all through color work that any sort of um, uh, dimension is given. Three dimensionality is given to the drawings. And that's true here as well. Um, and that is just very common for French comics, um, especially in this era. Uh, you know, this was this is a book from the 80s, um, and I think that it really shows in the sort of subject matter that it deals with and also in the style. Um, and I think that you see what sort of uh, audience they were going for here, you know? Yeah. So l- let's talk for a few minutes, if, if it's okay with you, about the artwork a little bit. Just because as I was of course, of yes. putting together my thoughts about this, that was one of my chunks, my sections was, okay, here are some thoughts on, on the artwork. Um, one thing that you... Yeah, what did you think about Mobius's work? I thought it was interesting. Again, I didn't care for it a lot. Uh huh. There were certain parts that I... I there were certain things that I was like, okay, uh, this looks cool. And then there are other parts that, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, and I don't know, and I wanted to kind of circle back around, you mentioned that they're bigger comics. Okay. Yes. So like physically dimensions, are they bigger than what we would normally see in American comic books? Yes. I went and I grabbed some of my French comics because this is the kind of person that I am. Uh, And they are, approximately nine by 12 okay uh is how big a french album style comic is um which you know an american uh uh an american style comic is usually like eight by 10.5 or so and then japanese comics the magazines are published bigger but the tonka bonds the collected editions are usually more like five by seven so as a whole they're a larger comic to look at so that's interesting that you mentioned that because I started reading this and again, I got these digitally and I started reading on my 10 inch iPad pro, which is what I generally do most of my reading on because it's kind of the right size where, you know, it's, it's comfortable to hold in my hands. It's not too big, but it's, I don't know. It, it, it just feels out of my two iPads. It's the better size for reading. And so all of my sure. Marvel Unlimited reading, that's what I've done it on reading, Again, the Eternals, Hawkeye, um, Annihilation. I did that all on that iPad. No problems at all. I started reading the in-call on that iPad, and I had to switch. I had to take it and go to my 13-inch iPad because I needed those extra two inches, I felt like, because the scenes on the whole seemed to me incredibly busy. So much going on that I just felt like I needed more screen real estate to be able to kind of take it in. And again, that's interesting that you mentioned that they tend to be bigger because I just found that, that I needed a bigger screen than I would normally read on because the artwork felt so dense to me. Yes. One thing I'll say that really annoys me about this printing that is probably the same in your digital edition. I would imagine it's the same. So one of the things that really annoys me, I I know you're reading digitally. I bought uh, the book. I purchased a copy of it because I'm that person. I like to read comics uh, on paper. I'm not a digital comic reader. Nothing against people who read them digitally. I just, I, I have to hold it in my hands. They published it tiny. Interesting. It's the size of an American. It's the size of an American comic. It's not the size of a French comic, and 
this was the thing that really drove me crazy, and I went to check this. Why is the typeface so small? There is so much wasted real estate in these word balloons. Huh. Did you notice that? I don't think I did. I wonder if that was a difference in, in the digital version versus the other. In fact, I kind of want to hurry and pull it up really fast. And Yeah, if you go back and look at it, many of the uh, word balloons just have a lot of white space in them. And so I thought to myself... Nope, you're right. I'm looking at a page right now, and and the words are taking up, in some cases, like a third of there's yeah, so much border or a and third. white space around that you're like, you could literally put three times as much words in that balloon. And so I thought to myself, what's going on here? So I went to the trusty internet, went to the internet archive, which just happens to have scans of the original 1982 printing of L'Ancal Noir, the original publishing in French. Guess what? Those word balloons are full. Really? They are full to the brim. They are not wasted space on the page. So I'm thinking to myself, humanoids, what are you doing here? You made the print smaller than the print should be and smaller than previous prints of the collection have been. And then the new translation is also paginated with a much too small font with a bunch of wasted space in it. And I think that, and I, and I wonder if maybe they did it to be like, oh, we don't want to distract from Mobius's art. But instead, I found it distracting because I had to hold the page so close to my face. Like, I couldn't read it sometimes because it was so small. I would have to be like, okay, now I got to, I'm like an old man. I'm Sophia <laughs> Petrilla from Golden Girls here, and I have to hold it close to my face. And I thought it was a really strange choice. But that totally goes along with me switching to the bigger iPad and feeling like exactly. I needed to make that change. That's really interesting. Exactly. I thought it was really interesting. Um, but yeah, so artwork very busy you were saying what other thoughts did you have about it very busy um another question i had for you is is talk to me about the colors is this a mobius thing is this a french comic thing is this an era thing because i felt like the colors were in general there are some exceptions but i felt like in general the colors were kind of muted and felt washed out um that is sort of a French comics thing. Um, I, it, it's more like vibrant and lurid than 2000s comics are because there was a big push, especially when comics coloring went digital. Uh, comics were ruined for a while, uh-huh. if you ask my humble opinion. Um, and especially with recoloring things, I know that they went back and re-recolored this to have the original coloring. And again, I am looking at the scans of the other issue of the original issue alongside my copy of it. And the colors are pretty true to true to, uh, the original printing here. Um, so there is a, they even made a point at the beginning of a couple of these to say something about how the colors, um, they they were try they did something to make the color yeah that doesn't surprise me i know that the again in the 2000s when digital coloring became the norm they recolored so many old comics to their detriment like if you go back and especially like some of those 60s and 70s marvel and dc comics if you look at newer reprints of them they just make me want to cry because they look so terrible because like I, you know, these are books that were made in the 60s and 70s on four color printing done cheaply, sure, onto newsprint, 
but they had like a vibrancy to them and newer digital coloring where they're like lots of shades and more like real to life coloring just does not work for me. Yeah. And I think that this comic finds itself kind of at a crossroads um, between other French comics and and the future of comics, but it still really fits the form. You know, I went and I picked up, again, I went and picked up a bunch of books just to flip through while we were preparing for this, and I picked up what I think, if I if you held a gun to my head and said, what inspired the ink call, I would say two things. I would say, obviously, uh, Yodorowsky and Mobius working on all those Dune, uh, those the Dune preparations. Mm-hmm. But also Messier and Christens, uh Valerian and Laureline, which is a very famous French comic series starting in I think the '60s, maybe late or early '70s. Uh, but or I guess 1970 was when the very first uh, volume was printed. You maybe are familiar with it from the 2017 movie Laureline or uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. It's one of those that I know it exists and it looked really bad. So I never tried to watch also, it. I've never watched it because Dane DeHaan is a bad actor and. Oh, he has such a punchable face. Like all you wanted, like every time I see him, you're just like, you know what? You know what? I thought literally the exact same thing. I just want to punch you in the face, man. <laughs> I th- when I was thinking about this this uh, comic series earlier this week after I finished the in-call and I was like, I should go back and read some more Valerian and Laureline. I thought to myself, should I see that movie? It has Rihanna in it, and I love Rihanna. But she's probably in it for like three minutes, and Dane DeHaan's face is there the rest of the time. I just want to punch him. You know, if you want to watch a movie with Rihanna in it, you're probably better off watching Battleship, honestly. At least she had a bigger role in that. I'm sure it's just as terrible, but at least she had a larger role. You know... It's actually not the worst movie in the world. If you watch it saying, this is the stupidest thing ever. It is a freaking movie based on Battleship. As long as expectations are really low, it's a great turn your brain off and enjoy it kind of movie. But that's all. Sure. It wasn't at least offensive. Like everything I saw about Valerian just looked offensively obnoxious. We'll see. And this will tie back into talking about the Incal. So Valerian and Laureline, famous French series about these two time cops, essentially, who have a very distinctive spaceship, which many people think was the primary uh, influence for what the Millennium Falcon looks like because they took the Valerian's ship. And I can't remember the name of it. It's just like the BT-8000 or something like that. But they took Valerian's ship and they were like, let's make this lopsided. (laughs) <laughs> and that was how the that's how the Millennium Falcon was made. They were like, but like you can see in Valerian and Laureline Star Wars. You can. Okay. You just do. Sure. You see Star Wars in it. Um and it's extremely influential on Mobius and specifically on the Incal because uh Christin, the artist for the Valerian series, is one of the four founding members with Mobius of heavy metal magazine okay so they worked together they made heavy metal magazine which again was a very and still exists it's it was a very popular anthology magazine that did kind of what japanese comics do where you would buy an issue and it would have the next chapters of quite a few uh different uh books so mobius and crestant were friends they started heavy metal together and you see in the ink hall the definite 
uh, influence of Creston's art, like just wildly. Like when I wrote, looked through it, I was like, oh, okay, so Mobius is trying to be Creston with his spin on it here huh. in a lot of ways, from the coloring to the way that like panels are are structured um even down to like the way that he will frame things in his panels is very very influenced by valerian and laurelin okay uh and but so that's why i would say that and dune are the two big influences on the incal sure um and so yeah in terms of coloring it looks a lot like valerian and laurelin in terms of its color yeah And, and and you know it's it's not something that again I didn't find it unappealing. There were just times where I think maybe my simple mind wanted a little bit brighter colors or in particular, because again, I just kind of glanced through a few pages, um, more contrast. And I think that might actually be the bigger thing is the pages don't feel like they have as much contrast as perhaps I'm used to, or as perhaps I'm looking for. And so I think that was kind of why, Again, I, I thought you know, my gut when I was done was that, hey, you know, visually it looked a little washed out. And I think that might be just the, the lack of contrast uh, in, in a lot of the panels. There were, I think that makes sense. There were a few other things that, and again, these are very stylistic things. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this, because you understand the medium so much better than I do. But, you know, there were lots of times where visually some of the characters, and in particular, John was so inconsistent in how he was being drawn. And, and I understand that at least I I think some of that is trying to convey how much influence the Incal has over him at certain times. And, you know, I mean, there's Mm -hmm. times at the very beginning, the thing I thought is I'm like, he looks straight up like Ichabod crane from the let, you know, Disney's old legend of sleepy hollow. Like he's got the long gangly. He's got the weird kind of like knickerbocker type things, the shoes with like buckles. He's got the ponytail, the big old nose. And then there are times where the only reason, you know, it's John is because somebody talks to him as John because he looks completely different. Uh And I understood at least that I, like I say that I thought this was okay. He's being changed by the in call, but it, there were times where it felt inconsistent and it just made it a little bit more, I don't know if I'd say work, but it didn't make it flow quite as well as I think I would have liked. It just took me out of at times where I'm like, well, he looks completely different. Why does he look completely different? Yeah. And stuff. So mm-hmm. that was kind of, and there were a few other times where, you know, I'm thinking about when they're on that water prison world, which I can't remember Aquend or something. I don't remember if that was what it was called. Yes, Aquend. Um, but there were times there where kind of from panel to panel, some of the colors of things would change. Where it's like the water's one color here, but it's a different color here, and the Medusa are one color here, and they're a different color here. And again, uh-huh. not a big deal, but just things that kind of took me out of the story a little bit because I was noticing them. Definitely. I definitely agree with you there. And I first I have to correct myself it was messier who was the uh artist on valerian uh creston was the writer i misspoke messier was the artist just want to get that on the record so we don't get not that we have an email address for people to send things to <laughs> so we don't get any ang- any angry emails from valerian fans that i misspoke we definitely um, but don't want that. i think that 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 inconsistency 
I think that you're exactly right that it is most often shown with John because like when the Meta Baron is on the screen, you know it's the Meta Baron, not the screen, on the page. Yep. You know it's the Meta Baron. Yeah. He has his distinctive bald pate. He's got those extremely distinctive eyebrows um and his weird ear. Yep. Like you know it's him on the page. The women, you know when the women are on the page. You know and you could tell which one is which. There's never any question when Anima is on the page, you know it's Anima. But John is really kind of elasticy in the way that he is presented. And sometimes he looks really noble and sometimes he looks absolutely horrid. And sometimes I think that you're right, that that is the ink call. And sometimes I just think that that is um, Mobius playing with the protagonist sure. and the look of the protagonist. Um, because you got to draw his face a lot. And I think he just had fun with it sometimes because he's such a, he is what his name says. He is such a fool. He is such a, uh, kind of a put upon every man character, but more of just sleazeball. And so I think that him being at his core, like you said, through and through the scum of the earth. Like there is nothing redeeming about Jean de Fool. And I think that that is why, Mobius makes that choice to make his features so malleable and so mute, like so changeable, mutable, and 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 kind of mutate through the course of the of the artwork. And again, probably part of that is the fact is it took a, te- a decade to draw. Yeah, you know, it, you as a as an artist, you change a lot over the course of a decade, and the ways that you present your art change a lot over the course of the decade. One of the things talking about the art. Yeah, that that absolutely makes that make more sense. Uh, talking about the art, did you notice? I guess you. It's this is more obvious to me because I have a paper copy. Volumes one through four, so chapters one through four. Very like I said, French style comics par excellence. The the grid is on the page. Every panel is rectangular. There's not really any, not maybe not every single panel, but nearly every panel is rectangular. There's not a whole lot of playing with border. You never break the gutter. Like the gutter is the gutter. You never go out of the bounds of the page and everything has big, nice white borders around it. Uh Then you get to chapter five and what suddenly happens the minute you get to chapter five, I'm trying to get there and look at it again. So you tell me while I'm looking page three of chapter five, suddenly you've got full blade, full bleed pages immediately. And that flies in the face of tradition of Franco Belgian comics. Franco Belgian comics do not break the frame. And suddenly, as soon as you get to chapter five, the frame is busted and does not come back. There's not a single page where the frame is intact with very, very few exceptions of like full page spreads as I'm flipping through it. Suddenly, the rules of construction of the comic change drastically. We've got diagonal breaks between panels. We've got panels layered on top of other panels. We've got um, things that are extending from one panel into the other panel to help guide your eye and to uh, uh, kind of... uh, guide your guide your understanding through the action of what's happening and it helps that like a lot of the big set pieces start happening in chapter five chapter five is where they finally like make the assault on the war star Uh and so like stuff really starts to hit the fan in terms of the action of the book um and you see that in the way that uh 
he works on the page suddenly. Like, you can still tell that it's Mobius. The art hasn't changed. You can still tell when you see his artwork, oh yeah, this is Mobius. But the rules are completely broken. He threw them in the trash, which I think is really interesting because that still is not really the norm in French comics. Okay. French comics as a rule still follow the normal layout rules. They don't really break the rules. You don't usually break out of the panel, but the panels are just gone. Like, like the rules of paneling are just gone, especially in the last two chapters. And I think that that's fascinating from a construction standpoint. And I think it would be really interesting to ask him if he were still with us, why did you make that choice? And how was that choice influenced by the work of other comics and the work and other things that you were reading at that time? And as a reader, how does it affect me? as I'm seeing this comic change as I'm reading it. And it's really, and again, it's fascinating to me when I hold the paper copy, the first two thirds of the book are just white edges with little lines where the pack, where the chapter breaks are. And then the last third of the book has completely colorful edges because suddenly there's full bleed pages. Yeah. No, like I say, while you were chatting, I kind of just went and compared chapter one to chapter five. And it is a surprising a difference between those two in that regard. Yeah. It's a, uh, I, I don't know. I think it's really interesting the way in which you, and, and it, the eighties were a pivotal, a pivotal time for that. The eighties were when in America, comics went from kids stuff to adult stuff, uh-huh. largely on the back of, I would say four major things, dark Knight rises, watchmen, uh, daredevil born again, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Okay. Those four things were the things that make comics change in the mid 80s here in America. And that change also started happening abroad because um, American cultural production is always, you know, outwards towards the periphery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Metropole always pushes out to the periphery. And that's exactly what we do with American cultural production. You know, like there's a reason why the best selling movies in the world every year are American movies and the best selling books are American books because that's what we do with American culture. And so the same thing happens here in comics where at the start of the eighties, Mobius is doing extremely French style comics, but by the nineties, suddenly he's breaking all of the rules, even though, you know, one of those four comics I would mention Watchmen follows the rules even more uh, stringently than Mobius did in the early parts of this book. You know, when you read Watchmen, it's that three by the famous three by three grid, the nine panel grid that while Watchmen does it very well, I consider the bane of comics from all the people wishing they were as good as Moran Gibbons and couldn't come within 50,000 feet of them uh, trying to make their comics the next Watchmen and trying to do a three by three grid. Uh, But still like it helped shake up the comics industry uh, here in the States, which pushed it outwards because suddenly comics were an all ages affair while in Europe, it, they were already an all ages affair, you know, European comics, the most popular genre in European comics. Would you, I, I'm curious, take a guess. What do you think is the most popular genre in European comics? I, I don't know. I, I have a hunch, but I don't know. Oh, what's your hunch? Well, I would guess that it's, I would say that it's things that are much more adult oriented. Yeah. But what genre? I don't know. Westerns. Really? Westerns. I never would have got there. 
that's where Mobius got his start with Blueberry, which is a extremely famous Western that he did. McCoy is probably the best selling comic in uh, Europe. And it's a Western that started back in the 60s and has had various and sundry people work on it. And is still around today. You can still go buy McCoy comics today. And so Westerns were geared towards adults. Like that is not a genre that kids are into. Yeah. And with good reason. It's not It's not for them. It's fine. I don't like Westerns. Whatever. We don't have to talk about that. <laughs> they don't do but, much. Uh, but so from their foundation... Franco-Belgian style comics, the Bande Dessinée, these kind of comics, these album style comics, are geared towards an, uh, largely an older audience. And obviously, there are kids' comics too. Asterix, which is the other, like Tintin and Asterix, are both kids' comics, and they're over here, the ones that we've heard of. Like, that's what got imported to America were the kid comics. Uh-huh. But like, you can see as the as you read the call, this is obviously not geared towards kids. This is geared towards adult males. Yeah. That is who the target audiences here which is why there is a lot of pointless nudity yeah like the first two times that we say see anima on panel she's topless for no reason right like she's in a trash heap at the center of the world riding a rat why would she be titties (laughs) out doing that that doesn't make any sense you know and then then she's not like that for the rest of the comic as soon as they get to the center of the planet and blah, 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 they get onto the Incal, which is now a spaceship. Suddenly she wears a bodysuit the rest of it until the weird, like, death at the end of it. But, like... Yeah. But then they're like, let's find other ways to increase that titillation factor. Let's have other ways in which we can... As someone's flipping through the pages of that, they can be like, oh, boobs, maybe I should read this comic. <laughs> um because that's that's just how it works sometimes but like it's almost completely unnecessary to the storyline of the book and not only unnecessary i don't know it was interesting in that i would say well yes it was there and it seemed to be there oftentimes for no purpose i did not think there was anything erotic about it whatsoever it's not titill- that's the interesting thing is you're like the only reason you would put this in is for titillation but i am not titillated by this at all no like it was just like okay whatever there's there's nothing sexy about the nudity in this comic yeah. it did definitely much. like i have read comics where you're like oh this is sexy but <laughs> this is not there's nothing sexy about this no it just felt like it was like you said kind of there without at least to me any clear purpose you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't not only not necessary, but not even germane to what was being yeah. told or what was being presented at that time. I agree. I agree. It's just kind of a mess. It's a mess of a book. I'm glad I read it again. It's been probably 15 years since I've read it. I'm really glad I read it again. I'm glad I own it. I don't know that I'll read it again though. You know, I'm kind of glad to hear that because I thought the same thing. I read it and I thought from a standpoint of, understanding what at least certain things on you know wikipedia and other stuff would tell me is an important stepping stone for the progression of comics over the last few decades i'm glad i read it i'm glad i had that experience but i'm the same i have no plans on going back and reading it again no and like when i first read it and like when i first finished it i was like should i go read some of the others should i read before in call or after the in call and then i was like Mobius doesn't even do the art for those. And that's the only thing that would interest me enough to come back is to see what Mobius 
would evolve into because I've read some of those early, you know, 60s, 70s blueberry comics he's done and comparing those to this, it's like, oh, I can see his, his evolution as an artist and, and the ways he grew. Uh, and, and you can, you can, you can even see that in this book, the way that he started pushing the borders of what he was doing in the comic literally by messing with the borders of the comic page. Yeah. And so if Mobius was the one doing all that art, I might think to myself, well, at least flip through them. But then I realized he doesn't even do the art for the other ones. And I was like, mm, no, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I had the same thought because those were all part of this Humble Bundle that I got. Yep. And so I have digital versions of all that. And I anticipate that the completionist in me at some point will want to read it. But I don't know when that's going to be. Yeah, it'll happen when it happens. You got it. And when you want it. So we're running a little long. There's another thing that I found really interesting, and and I don't know if I'd say interesting, but that that bothered me. And I wondered, and I wanted to get your input on this. Go for it. Is this just the way Jodorowsky wrote this, or is does any of this have to do with the translation? And that is one of, for me, the biggest sins that both science fiction and fantasy can commit is when they just kind of come up with nonsensical uses of words that we know or silly little changes to to things that we know just to make it seem different or science fiction or future futuristic or something like that so you know just silly little things like the fact that the president it's president with a z instead of an s and then you know the techno techno what i actually wrote down in my notes was the techno techno bullshit um, <laughs> but you know you've got the <laughs> you've got the the techno pope and the techno priests and the techno techno science and i'm like what does this all mean and then the meta baron is another perfect example okay well the meta baron why is he the meta baron and why does he have a meta gun and a meta car and a meta plane and you know it kind of felt like in that aspect the Meta Baron reminded me of the 1960s Batman, where everything had bat in front of it. You know, it's the bat plane, and it's the bat shark repellent, and it's the bat this. And it was kind of the same thing. It was the meta this, and the meta that, and the meta this. And I definitely think that was the case with the Meta Baron. And I just found myself kind of starting to, like, gloss over some of the language because I'm like, okay, you know, you're talking about conapts. I'm like, okay, is that like, are you making up a new word that's like a condominium and kind of an apartment and you're calling it a conapt? And, you know, homeo whores. Like, what the heck is a homeo whore? Like, it was just all these weird little things that I'm like, it feels to me, the very unexperienced reader, that some of this language was just thrown in there to make it seem different. Does that make any sense? Oh. Uh I think that's exactly the case. And out of curiosity, I am trying to figure out what they use in the French version because I have the French version pulled up here and I can read enough French to try to figure out. I just need to find a page where it says president so I can look it up. Uh, da, 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 da. But yeah, like I definitely agree with you. That's a, I, that is a large problem I also have with sci-fi and fantasy where you're like, it's just... Just use the word we already have. You're not impressing me by having a different word for it. Yeah. Um, you're mostly just uh, annoying me. And I definitely felt that was the case here. 
uh, especially with the president and Conapt and all that sort of stuff. Um, there was just no reason for it. Um, I don't know. It yeah. was again, they were just, they were just one of the other little things that kind of pulled me out of the story. And that's why I wouldn't say that I necessarily was bothered by it, but it was, I was a little disappointed because I wanted to get into the story. I wanted to really, you know, kind of dive in. I mean, I had some time off last week. I was like, great. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to read this on my nice, bright micro LED iPad screen that looks gorgeous. And so it's a great thing to look at. And then I was just like, oh, I'm just glossing over stuff because I didn't love the colors. And then, you know, now that you mention it, I think all the negative space in the speech bubbles, at least in the first few chapters, was part of it because it makes so much of the page white. It's really off-putting to me. When it doesn't need to be. And then, again, just little language things like that that kind of pulled me out. Because every time I come across one of these little words, my brain would just be like, that was dumb. Why'd you do that for? Why? Uh-huh. Why? Why did you do that? As far as I can tell, the president with a Z is an invention of the translator. <laughs> I've wondered if that that's was a something dumb, like that. That's a dumb invention. That's a real dumb invention. <laughs> now I got to see if Conapt is a thing they also invented because there's just no reason for it. <laughs> I don't know, man. I just, yeah. Like you said, it's just like, why, why you do it like this? There's no reason for you to do it like this. Um, well, at this point, why don't we say anything here on out? We're just going to talk about some aspects that will totally spoil it so that we can just kind of go over some of the parts of the story. Does that sound okay to you? I was just going to suggest the same thing. I love it. So what were your thoughts on the story? Help me understand this because here's again what I'll say. And I got the impression with the very last few pages that this was really supposed to be about John's journey because obviously the last panel of the book is not exactly the same, but very similar to the first panel of the first chapter. Uh huh. And, you know, John asks the giant golden Santa Claus, God baby thing. Um, how many times have I lived? And, and the baby says, it doesn't matter. You have to remember. And then it just finishes. And so I'm like, okay, is this like some, you know, is he on a treadmill here? Is he having to go through this journey until he learns something? Because if that's the case, boy, he's going to be on this for a long time because he didn't learn a freaking thing. He didn't learn anything. He didn't learn anything. Like you said, he's a completely uh, irredeemable main character, which is why I thought, you know, I finish and I think to myself, well, should I read more of this? And I was like, I don't want to read more about John DeFool. Yeah. Like, if anything, I would maybe go read the Meta Barons because I think the Meta Baron is a very interesting character in that I think that you're right that everything is meta this, meta that, as a um, parody of of like the super excellent, hyper competent superhero like Batman. Sure. Because there's no the, the meta plane, the meta laser. This none of this matters. None of this. It's just a plane. It's just a laser. But because he's the meta baron, he has to have meta everything. And so I was like, I think he's interesting. And the word meta doesn't mean anything in, in this aspect. And that was again in this context. Yeah. It's yeah. Just uh, okay. Here's just this prefix that we've thrown on all of his stuff. Uh huh. Yeah. It's a. I don't know. I. 
Will I read the Meta Barons? Probably not. But if I was going to read any more Yodorowsky, it would probably be something in the Meta Barons because I found that more interesting. Uh, but yeah, I just don't. I again, I thought it was. I thought it was great to look at. I like Mobius's art. Sure. Um, I like the way that it works, and I thought that he did some really interesting things. The design of the Inkal as a structure with these two, like merged black and white pyramids i think is a very striking design yeah kind of the way they protrude out of each other you know and you get the yeah. idea that they've they have come together and fused but they are not a single entity still that it is a fusion of two distinct entities that even after coming together remains two distinct entities uh-huh well and like you know the entire concept of well, we've created an entire galaxy where it is just clones of John DeFool <laughs> when you get to chapter yeah, six. Yeah, when he like, gets back to the bird planet, I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I died. I died laughing because I was just like, I had forgotten entirely that that's what had happened. I I had forgotten the back half of this book, essentially, and I thought I'd read the whole thing. Maybe I didn't read the back half of it, but... <laughs> I had completely forgotten that he goes to the De, now the Defoe galaxy instead of the Berg galaxy because <laughs> yeah. everyone is a clone of him. And he goes into the homie horror house and then the girl turns around and it's his face on a sexy body. And he's like, mm, no, thanks. <laughs> which fair. He's got an ugly face. But, uh, you know, like I, like you said, I just don't I don't feel like he learns anything through this. Um, and it deals with some really uh, retrograde ideas about gender like so many i mean this is a problem I, to a certain degree i'm already sort of seeing this with dune not to the certain ex- the same extent that i do here where it's like well the benny Gesserit are special because they're women and paul is different because he's a man who knows these benny Gesserit things uh-huh. and and that's taken to its you know logical extreme with the wheel of time and was his name randall thor is that his name yeah rand is the uh, the main character so rand is a dude who can do magic because in this world only cis women can do mad and granted it doesn't go into cis and trans stuff at all in that book series i can imagine but uh like there's a like a biological imperative that only women can do magic and only men and men cannot do magic so rand is special because he's a man who could do lady thing (laughs) magic so so i will counter that just a little bit and say that's actually not at all what it is um Oh, it's not? No. The short version is that in the the golden age in that world, men and women both channeled the ma- the one source, the, the true source, whatever they call it, and they worked the together. And Luz Theron Telamon, who was kind of the principal amongst the men, the male channelers, has this idea that he can dra- he can trap the Dark One and prevent the Dark One from trying to destroy the world. Asks the women to help him and says, look, we got to do this together. And the women are like, you're stupid. This is a bad idea. It's too dangerous. And he being the hothead, he goes and he tries to do it. And in the process of that, the dark one is able to taint um, what they refer to as sort of the male half of the source. And so there have been men who can channel. The problem is, is that because it's been tainted by the dark one, every male who channels goes insane and so the women hunt them down That's and right. kill them before they go insane and can do damage okay but still but yes, biological there's, there's, in, yeah. in essentialism of if you're a man magic make you go crazy yes for sure 
And that's sort of what we see here too in the, but taken to a, a, a weird mixture of the two with the androgyne yes. and like how the emperoress is a weird conjoined twin person in an egg that is both male and female and therefore is the absolute pinnacle of species and how saloon who is technically the biological child of amina and john de for no good reason why it would be john de kid was raised by the meta baron but suddenly is like revealed <laughs> to not in fact be a young boy but in fact be an androgene of their own i will use there even if the book refuses to use there um and can like split into a male and female half and when they do so it's like a white half and a black half that are conjoined just like the in-call and so like, yeah, I, I see a lot of that weird gender essentialism stuff of like, there's the, there's a lady half and a man half and you got to put them together to like figure it out. And it's like, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't like that sort of stuff because I think that humanity is a lot more complicated than, than that. And so that always kind of turns me off in a story and it kind of did it to me here, even though like. I thought Saloon was an interesting character, especially when he turned when they turned into a huge crystal for the vast majority of the book. Yeah. I was like, "That's cool. I want. I would be a huge crystal too if I lived in this world. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be a person. I would also want to be a huge crystal with laser powers." Well, and you know, you you hint you you, you kind of pointed a couple of things I noticed, and one of those was uh, again getting back to characters and what I said at the beginning. While I really don't care for John DeFool at all there were some of the ancillary characters who did actually seem to have a little bit of character development. Yeah. And it could have been done a lot more. It could have been pushed more, but, but at least there was that. So I did see that, that there was some development there. Um, there were also a few other times where in addition to kind of the, he, her, she, him, you know, emperoress, and, and like you said, the androgyne, all that kind of stuff. There was also hints that it wanted to address things like some racism type issues and some classism type uh-huh. issues, but then it just didn't seem to have any idea. What did it want to do with that? It, it starts to tee up these ideas a little bit and then just completely fumbles and doesn't do anything with these perhaps bigger picture ideas that it felt like it was trying to entertain to introduce, but it just didn't pull it off for me. I totally agree. Like, again, when you're talking about the, at the galactic scale, we've got the emperor S who is ruling this whole galaxy. And you've got the colonials on this one side who are clearly people sent off to these like weird planets that they've had to colonize. And then you've got like the techno priests and the banking union on the other side, trying to like control the galaxy that you're speaking my, you're speaking my language right there. Now we're talking about why the prequels are good, actually, when it comes to Star Wars. Like, okay, let's chat. But, like, then they miss the point entirely. Like you said, they just bring it up and they're like, hmm, looks like it's the haves versus the have-nots. Guess we'll send the general to the water planet. Yeah. And you're like, just give me more. Give me more about this. I want to see the intrigue. I want to see the development of that. But they don't have the page space for it. Yeah. Because of the way that that you know, uh, French publishing of comics works. They, you don't do it longer than 60, maybe 70 pages. So these are the amount of pages you got. You got to make your story fit in this, Yeah. which, you know, is not the case. Thankfully nowadays, again, ever since the 
I hate the term, but we'll use it, the graphic novel explosion of the 80s and 90s, now you're not constrained to those things anymore. You know, you can make a story that is just the story, and you take however many pages it takes to tell the story. Because you don't have to be published in these kind of antiquated um, structures that sometimes can work really well for you. There's lots of stories that work extremely well because of those strictures. You know, there... The pizza dog issue of Hawkeye works because you know it's 22 pages. Yes. Agreed. 200 pages of pizza dog would suck. 20 pages of pizza dog. No, but having it be just this little thing on its own, you can get through it. And, and Exactly. Having it, having it break through or again saying this chapter is from the point of view of the assassin. So instead of David Aha doing the art with his very clinical, very muted colors, uh, you know, lots of white space, lots of negative space. We're going to have Francisco Franca Villa come in, Uh who is an artist famous for his use of very vibrant reds and yellows and oranges. And that whole issue issue, I think it's issue five from the point of view of the sniper dude is like, totally different than the rest of it because they brought in a totally different artist to do it. So that's a book that works within those structures um, and and really excels within those structures, but lots of other books just don't. And I think that this is a book that would work better if the artist and the writer had the space to tell the whole story that was in their brain. Cause I think that Yodorowsky has a lot of ideas that he doesn't get on the page because he doesn't have the space for it. And I think that that makes for a weaker book than we could have gotten in 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 in, in a, a later era of comics production. Yeah, I agree, and I definitely got that feeling from it because it it felt like there was an unnecessary tension in the books between the story of the Incal and what they were trying to tell with John, and then these other stories that they were hinting at throughout the galaxy but didn't have, again, like you said, the time, the space or whatever to actually get to those stories. And the unfortunate part was a lot of times I thought those other stories had the potential to be more interesting than the main story that we were going through. Yes. And so you just felt this tension where it's like, okay, I know you're going to make me go and see what the heck is happening with John and, and his gang of misfits. I don't care. Tell me more about this. Tell me more about like, why the heck do the techno priests want shadow eggs to wipe out all the suns in the galaxy? Like, give me some more than it's just the darkness bids it to be. So, you know, I'm like, give me something more there. Make the techno Pope more interesting because again, John sure isn't. Yep. Or, or tell me more about Ramo. Who, why do the colonials love Ramo? Yeah. Why do the priests in the techno union hate him? Yeah. Like there is a cool backstory in that blue haired weirdo. I didn't get any of it. I, he showed up and he said, weird stuff's happening. And then they were like to the water planet with you. And then on the water planet, he was like, Oh, you mean the emperor S is here too? Okay, cool. Weird stuff's happening. Like he, and then of course, jellyfish can defeat the shadow eggs. Because that's well, what you think is you just jellyfish. think you need a jellyfish to coat it in plasma. And turn it into coal. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense to me. <laughs> like I say, there were just parts of this that I'm like, I feel like if you gave me more to get me to this point, then I would be on board with you. Yep. But you brought me to this point and you didn't earn it. You didn't give me enough 
whether it was backstory, whether it was side story, whatever it was, but we would get to these sections and I'm like, okay, I'm here, but I don't feel like you brought me here. Yep. You just kind of threw it at me. Yep. I agree. And like, okay, so I'm looking at the back of my book and there's a whole Yoda verse, which you now own all of because of the humble bundle. There's a whole book about the techno priests, but I don't feel like Yodorowsky earned my reading that book about the techno priests with what he put on the page here. I'm not interested enough. Like I I'm interested enough to read the Yoda verse wiki when I go to bed tonight, before I turn off the light, I'll maybe (laughs) pull that up on my phone and be like, okay, so what was the deal with the techno priests? But I don't care enough to buy or read those comics. Yeah. You know, again, they're ones that I'm glad I had grabbed that bundle. And at some point I'm sure I'll flip through them, but it wasn't quite what I was expecting just due to some of the adulation and the praise that was layered on this um, series of comics in some of the things I read, you know, I mean, I think there's a quote in, in the Wikipedia article from somebody who describes it as perhaps one of the most perfect comics ever. And I thought, to that's myself, not true at huh, all. Huh? That's interesting. Cause boy, if, if that's the most perfect comic ever, maybe I'm just not cut out to read comic books. So <laughs> Here's here's what I'll tell you as a comic book fan. This is not the most perfect comic ever. That comic exists and it's not this. It's maybe Akira, maybe Akira. Okay. Maybe. Well, you know. But that's a lot. That's six volumes. That's like 3000 pages. Maybe we get there someday, but that's that's very good. Good. But like it's not this. This is not the best comic ever made. Well, this isn't even the best comic that Mobius ever made. I'm reassured cuz I like that. a lot of I like a lot of the blueberry stuff better, but like you said, this is extremely influential yes. because after you've read this, have you ever seen the fifth, the fifth element? Oh yeah. Go watch the fifth element again. And you'll be like, no wonder Mobius sued you. Yes. Well, I remember reading actually about that and thinking to myself, oh yeah, I can totally see that. I can absolutely see where they would be like, yeah, the design the design work that Besson brings into the fifth element. And granted, some of that was Mobius actually working on the movie, but then he ripped off a lot of stuff Mobius didn't do. And then Mobius was like, yeah, I mean, you ripped off my other work. You didn't rip off the work you paid me for. Yeah. And so like, and a lot of people who are, you know, comics creators who I really respect have a lot of respect for this book, but I think many of them have done better work. Interesting. Like, you know, Again, on that Yodoro, the Yodoverse page, Jason Aaron is saying Yodorowsky is our prophet, our patron saint of imagination. Dog, Jason Aaron, you're a better comics writer than Yodorowsky is. <laughs> I don't even like your stuff that much, but you're better than he is. Scalped is a better comic than the Ink Hall. Don't get it twisted. Yeah. It was definitely one of those things where I felt like Yodorowsky had these huge ideas, just big, big, big ideas. And just couldn't quite execute for me, you know? Yep. I totally agree. And his Dune would have been abhorrent. It, if if he took a, a lot of the stuff that the ideas they were coming up with Dune and, and this is what we got out of it, I absolutely have to agree that it would have been like it would have made the David Lynch version of Dune look like the most boring, sedate and you know, prim and proper little movie that you ever could have come up with. It would have been absolutely oh, yeah. bonkers and incomprehensible. Oh yeah. Part of me really wants to have seen it because I think that it would have been 
a hell of a thing to look at, but not a fun thing to watch. Yes. That's what I think it would be. <laughs> no, I, it would be absolutely fascinating to sit back and observe, but yeah, you wouldn't want to like really dig in and try and, 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 and really grok it as a, as a thing. You just kind of look at it and go, wow, wow. Somebody, whatever they were smoking or snuffing or, you know, snorting or inhaling or whatever, when they were working on this, it must've been good stuff. Cause this is something else. Yeah. He must've been on whatever that drug is that John DeFool is always talking about at the start of this book. <laughs> I can't, I, I can't remember. think of the name of the drug. Uh, uh, either, now I, I have to look it up because I'm curious and then we'll end on this. Oh, SPV, which is a light, a light hallucinogen. So clearly, Yodorowsky was on some SPV. I think you're right. But we should probably wrap this up. We've we've talked for a while. I think it was a really interesting conversation. Honestly, maybe a better conversation than the book. <laughs> well, and again, despite the fact that I can honestly say I did not enjoy it, I enjoyed the experience of going through and reading it, and I absolutely enjoyed talking to you about it because you have such a better understanding of this particular form of entertainment, this medium than I do. And I think I understand some of the things that I didn't, I understand them now in a way that I didn't. And so I feel like I'm a more educated person from having gone through this, even though, you know, it, it wasn't great. It wasn't for me. Um, but, but I think that it was, it was absolutely worth going through. So I, I appreciate you uh, recommending this. And, and again, really appreciate all of the just the deep comic knowledge that you bring to the table um, that I don't have. So I, I thought that was great. I really enjoyed it. Now, I know it's been a long time since you were in college, but this was like a comics or a college course where you're like, I'm glad I read that. I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> Man, it's been a real long time since I've been in college. But yes, I still yeah, have those that's... vivid memories of those sorts of experiences. All right. Well, we should wrap it up. Um, but thank you all for listening. Um, if you uh, liked this episode or if you like what we've put out so far, go ahead and give us a rating in your podcast platform of choice if it allows for such a thing. Um, I don't know about you, but I think we're a five-star pod. Um, I agree completely. So, you know, feel free to uh, give us the plaudits that we have well earned by reading this uh, very interesting, if uh, ultimately frustrating book. I mean, we did um, the homework. And we'll be back in a... We did the homework. We did we the should, homework. We should get, like you said, we should, we should get something for doing the homework. Amen. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, with another conversation uh, about something in pop culture. And uh, we're really excited to uh, chat with you then. So until next time, keep on enjoying whatever pop culture it is that you're enjoying. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Bye.